Thanks, Matt. Morning, guys. Thanks, Matt. I uh, look forward to being with you guys today and always enjoy my time with East Point. Uh, last Sunday, I was at Saddleback Church, the large campus in Orange County. About 4,000 people gathered, and it was powerful. But I'm here to tell you, man, what we just experienced in worship was awesome. And I wouldn't trade our worship team and what God does in our midst for anybody or any place. Well, thanks for praying for me. Uh, most of you know I was gone. I was working on some messages. Uh, I worked all the way through July. I'm going to do three new series. Excited about them. One I'm calling New Beginnings after Easter. Uh, the one after that, we're going to take a look at uh, dumb things smart people believe and kind of blow up some stuff in the Bible that uh, uh, people think in the Bible it's not. And then I'm going to do a series off one of my favorite books last year, a series called Unoffendable, and, uh, by, a book by Brent Hansen. So looking forward to it. I had a great time with Saddleback. Uh, with the guys down there. I, I don't know if you know, I'm a part of the Purpose Driven Global team and had just a great, great time meeting with those guys and getting encouraged as well. But it's good to be home. We're going to be uh, dealing with the topic today uh, in our series, as Matt mentioned, called Love, Loveology. And uh, as I've said every week, and I listened to Matt's message last week, which he did a great job, uh, he said it as well, that we recognize that not everything we cover in every one of these weeks applies to everybody. Uh, that it may not directly apply to you. We understand that reality. But as we have said every week, it's a relationship series. And how many of you are in a relationship with a human? Yeah, we all are. You have somebody, whether you like it or not, you're in a relationship with somebody who is a li living, breathing human. And uh, we have people all around us that we can support and help and encourage. Uh, my topic today is a, a sensitive one. And I'm aware of that. It's a Christian response to our gay friends. And I know the intensity of the debate, uh, the conflict over this issue uh, in churches and families and in our country right now. But for me, this isn't about an issue. It's not just an issue. It's about people. People that I know, people that I love, people that uh, identify themselves as gay, or people who uh, are friends of mine, or family, or people I love dearly who are connected to someone who is gay. And I understand the intensity of this. I'm not an idiot. Believe me. Well, I am an idiot, but that's another issue. Um, I'm going to ask you today to listen with your heart, to try not to react out of your pain, or your past, I'm going to ask you to uh, truly listen. You may not agree with me, uh, but I'm going to ask you to listen nonetheless and to open your heart. I'm going to do my best to present what the Bible teaches. Uh, I have read extensively on this uh, all across the board in terms of perspectives and beliefs. Uh, I've studied a lot, and more than ever probably for a series and for this message in particular. And today I want to address what the Bible teaches and seven common objections. Seven common objections. Now, before I hit the highlights of what the Bible teaches um, or what I believe to be a Christ-like response to our gay friends, I need to do something important. I need to repent. I want to repent and ask the gay community, uh, if you're here or whether you're listening online, I'm going to ask you to forgive the church for its often harsh, mean, and ugly reaction to you. And I sincerely mean that when I say, please forgive us. Uh, that reaction has not represented Jesus uh, or his uh, love or his heart for you. And I'm sincerely sorry for the way that you've been treated by some who call themselves Christians who have not acted like Jesus. So I, I, I mean what I say, forgive us. Too often the church uh, and those who call themselves Christians have not been very Christ-like as they've singled out homosexuality as if it's a, the unpardonable sin or perhaps the sin above all sins. And it's not. So I want to be clear, painfully clear, very clear. I love people who identify themselves as gay, and we will welcome them into this church. We will. Jesus loves you and embraces you as a person greatly valued by God, and so do I, and so do we. 
I want to be clear about that. That being said, I also need to be clear about this. God's vision and plan for marriage is between one man and one woman, and consistently taught throughout scriptures, homosexual behavior is presented as a sin, and marriage is always between a man and a woman. Again, I'm going to deal with some of the pushback and the objections to that in a moment. But the Bible consistently teaches that this is, in fact, a sin. Now, I know sin is an ugly word. Uh, reality is all of us have sinned. Everyone in this room, we have all sinned. And we cannot fully understand or embrace the grace and the goodness of God until we own our failures. That's just like theology 101. Basic Bible 101 is that until we admit that we have all sinned, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's intent, His glory. Until we admit that, we can't find the help that we need and we can't find the forgiveness that we need. And so we've all failed. As John Mark put in his book, Loveology, and I've mentioned that book several times. I think we sold out of it, but it's a great book. The church, he says, is a kaleidoscope of every age, every ethnicity, every walk of life, and every sexual orientation. And he goes on to say this, there are only two common denominators we all share. We're all screwed up, and we're all being put back together by Jesus. I love that. That is truth. There's only two things that we all share. One is that we're all messed up, we're all screwed up, and we all are being put back together by Jesus. That's a reality that we all share. Now, unfortunately, we humans resist that reality. We don't like to admit that we sin. Uh, we avoid the S word a lot. I get that. I know it's not popular in our culture to bring that up. And I know it's more popular to say, well, I'm okay, you're okay, or whatever you want to believe is fine with me, doesn't matter. And we attempt to redefine what the Bible teaches to fit our personal beliefs. Now, here's a reality again that I understand and accept. Not everybody believes in the Bible. Even some who say they're Christ followers don't believe in everything the Bible teaches. I get that. Again, I understand that. But I believe that there's a standard. I believe that truth is truth and that we have to understand that God sets the standard. Tragically, in our world, we often find the media, find the culture around us, trying to identify what is abnormal as normal. You cannot turn on the television at night and turn on any program, any program, I, unless it's maybe on TBN, but let's say any program that's secular television, you cannot find one program that's not somehow advancing something as normal that is in fact abnormal. You will. You'll find it. Situational ethics. Well, yeah, the guy, you know, killed that guy, but the guy deserved it. Uh, well, yeah, the guy's a police officer and he, he tweaked the rules a little bit, but the end result was good. Um, situational ethics. Again, we find that all the time. Uh, premarital sex. Man, that's all over the place, all the time. And again, over and over, and again, this issue of homosexuality, over and over, over in our culture again, is presented as normal, when in fact it's abnormal. And in our society, the majority tends to rule rather than morality ruling. I want to suggest that that's not a way that's healthy for anyone to live, let alone a culture that uh, was founded on biblical principles. So we cannot let culture define what is and isn't right and what is and isn't true. You know, and most reasonable people would acknowledge that. We cannot let the culture define what is and isn't truth. God is God, and we are not. And he's the standard setter. God is God, we are not, and he sets the standard. So what does the Bible teach? Well, let me hit a few things, and there's a lot, but I'm going to cover some of the highlights. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. The Old Testament explicitly forbids homosexual behavior. In fact, it's interesting, even non-Christians, uh, gay rights activists, they 
acknowledge this truth, that the Old Testament explicitly forbids homosexual behavior. And I listed several passages there. But here's the objection. Objection number one. I said I'm going to cover seven. Here's the first objection. Well, we're not under the law, and therefore the Old Testament does not apply to New Testament Christians. We're not under the law, and so it doesn't matter what the Old Testament teaches because that doesn't apply to us today. Here's my answer. Wrong. Wrong. There are several kinds of laws in the Old Testament. And again, I, I'm going to hit the highlights of this. If you have more questions, you feel free to contact me or email me. We'll talk about this. But there are several kinds of laws in the Old Testament. And this is where there's a lot of confusion. I'm going to give you about 90 seconds to try and clear this confusion up. There are what's called ritual or ceremonial laws that address how things are to happen in the tabernacle. We no longer worship in the tabernacle, so they don't apply to us. But there are ritual or ceremonial laws. There's also civil law, civil case law, governing how people were to react or act with one another. If uh, you're, some guy actually kills your goat or your donkey, then there's civil law that covers what happens in the event of that. And the third kind of laws that are in the Old Testament are moral laws, moral code. And listen to me, those codes, those moral laws are universal and forever binding, such as the Ten Commandments. The New Testament now clearly sets aside ceremonial and case laws. Right, we are no longer under those laws. But Jesus, listen to me, he affirmed the Old Testament moral code. And no honest Bible teacher or Christian can or should ignore that fact. The moral codes, the life principles taught in the Old Testament are of value to us. And they do apply to New Testament Christians. And uh, you might have heard something different from somebody else. I'm telling you, this is Theology 101. This is absolutely what every evangelical ought to be teaching. This is the truth. In fact, Jesus did not lower the standards. He raised them. Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust after a woman because you've committed adultery in your heart. Does that sound like lowering the bar or raising the bar? Yeah. Jesus said, don't, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I'm saying don't hate your brother. Jesus did not abolish the moral code of the Old Testament. In fact, he affirmed it and raised the bar. The Old Testament's clear. But speaking in the New Testament, here's the second truth. The second thing I want you to hear. The New Testament clearly teaches that homosexual behavior is sinful, ungodly, and unacceptable. And this is where the debate gets pretty heated. Second objection. Objection number two. Well, Jesus never taught about homosexuality. That's an argument I've had and, and discussed with quite a few people over the years. And here's the answer. Jesus did, in fact, address sexual impurity. And in Matthew 15, verses 19 to 20, here's what he said. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus taught on this, and the word he uses for sexual impurity here is a word in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, porneia. We get the word pornography from it, but it's much broader than just pornography. It includes anything. It was clearly understood by the listeners in Jesus' time. Every listening Jew who heard the word from Jesus, the words sexual impurity, would have, they would have thought any sexual sin of any kind. Every listening Jew would have absolutely included homosexual behavior in the category of sexual impurity. Every one of them. We have to look at the history, the context, who Jesus spoke these words to, and understand that when he said sexual impurity is wrong, that every, I, I promise you, every listening Jew would have included homosexual behavior in that. No doubt about it. Matthew 19.5, regarding marriage, Jesus affirmed the union of one man and one woman as the only normative expression 
of human sexuality. He said, you've heard it said, I know you said in the beginning God created man and, and woman, and he talks about marriage in that context. It is incredible to suggest that these words from Jesus have no bearing on the question of homosexuality. Of course they do. Of course they do. And every listening Jew at the time who heard Jesus, the original hearers, would have, without question, included homosexual behavior when Jesus said sexual impurity is wrong. No honest scholar or student of Jewish history would question that Jesus included that in his statement against uh, uh, sexual impurity. So to say that Jesus didn't address it is wrong. He did. Now some will say, well, he didn't mention specifically homosexuality. And they use what's called an argument from, from silence. Here's the problem with that or what it means. It means that if Jesus didn't specifically address it, then it must be okay. That's the argument. That's the logical conclusion of the argument they make. The problem with that is Jesus never said anything specific about child molestation, bestiality, incest, wife building, or craft. Jesus didn't specifically address those things either. But obviously those things are wrong. The argument from silence is a weak argument, especially when you understand the history, the context, and the words that Jesus used. Here's the third objection. Well, Paul's writings regarding homosexuality in the New Testament are misinterpreted. Again, that's a very, very common argument that's made. Let me read to you what Paul wrote. The clearest statement he made about it is found in Romans 1, 24 through 32. Paul wrote, Therefore God gave them, them there as idol worshipers, depraved humanity, over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Same word, same intent, same broad spoke, uh, uh, spectrum of sin. Over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. What's he talking about? Lesbian relationships. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were aflamed with lust for one another. What's he talking about? Homosexual relationships. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They didn't consider knowledge of God, what God said, of any value. So God said, fine, you go your way. See how that works out for you. I'm paraphrasing. Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Does that sound like our culture or what? Although they know God's righteous decree, they know what God has said is the standard. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Not only do they do them, but they say, it's no big deal, it's no problem. We approve your life. Now, liberal scholars have done acrobatics trying to explain away the clear teaching of this passage. And I sometimes, I just almost laugh in, when I read some of the arguments. I thought, wow, they have to bend over so hard to try so many ways to get around some clear teaching here. Some have suggested that Paul is only condemning the pagan practice of men sexually exploiting young boys sexual molestation of kids, which, by the way, did happen in that culture, and, of course, that's included in sexual impurity. But the interpretation that that's all Paul is dealing with here is wrong. 
because he says in verse 24 and 27, he mentions homosexual acts by men committed with, quote, with one another, with men. And in verse 26, he speaks of lesbian homosexual acts as well. So the argument that he's just addressing sexual molestation of men, of, of boys, which again, happened a lot in that culture, included but not exclusive to that. Other scholars have said that Paul is only condemning, this is just whacked, but this is what they argue that Paul is just condemning heterosexuals who engage in homosexual acts. That he's really not addressing homosexual people who have committed loving relationships with one another. He's saying it's not okay for a heterosexual to have homosexual sex. And again, that's just contrived and artificial and ludicrous. Without question, Paul, a good, God-fearing, trained in the Torah Jew, was condemning homosexual acts and behavior. Given the Old Testament background and what he said in two other passages, which I don't have time to read, you can look them up on your own, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 10, it's clear that Paul is forbidding all homosexual acts, all. He sees this behavior as the evidence of a corrupted mind which is turned away from God to moral degeneracy. And again, Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, porneo, which condemns all sexual sin as Jesus used. So let me be clear. Sexual impurity, when you read those words in the New Testament, includes anything, anything, adultery, incest, bestiality, child abuse, and homosexual behavior that is sexual and outside the covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman. What about Paul's arguments, uh, the argument that some make that Paul's teaching is irrelevant and, and doesn't matter in today's modern, modern world? Well, here's my answer to that. What Paul wrote about sexual purity was commonly believed and accepted by Christians of his day and for over 2,000 years. You may not know this, but this argument, this it's okay, the Bible says it's okay argument, is relatively new. Within the last 50 years or so, give or take a decade or two. For thousands of years, the church and Christians have clearly taught and believed and said this. And here's my position on this. Truth does not alter with time. Truth does not alter with time. I, I know we want to make what we believe, our personal belief, our personal preferences, truth. But that is not the standard. And truth does not alter with time. Let's move on. Here's the fourth objection to both the Old and New Testament teachings. Objection number four. Well, the Bible got it wrong on the issue of slavery and women, so why should we trust it regarding homosexuality? That's, again, a fairly common argument. Here's my answer. The Bible never condones slavery. It simply acknowledges it as a reality. It was in that culture. And every, I'll go nose to nose with any person on this, anywhere, every passage that is used or abused by men to put women in their place is taken out of context and not understood when evaluated by the big picture presented by the Word of God. Some of Paul's, listen carefully to me, and some of you have been taught differently. Again, listen. Embrace at least what I'm saying and consider this. Some of Paul's teachings regarding women fall under the category of what we would call civil or ceremonial practice within a specific church for a specific reason. I said the Old Testament civil and ceremonial law was set aside. Some of what is taught and even commanded by Paul in the epistles, in his letters, regarding some things regarding women is for a specific church and for a specific reason. And some of the commands in the New Testament are, are applicable only in a historical context presented. We have to understand the church in Corinth that he was writing to. Why did he say women should be silent in the church? 
because he's dealing with a problem, a situation in that church, specific time, a specific area, and, and that's why he made that comment to that church. Paul also acknowledged and addressed and affirmed women who prophesied in the church. How do you have women prophesying and being silent? Either Paul's really screwed up and confused, which some think that, or you have to zoom out and look at the big picture and say, no, Paul dealt with, and again, context, context, context. You have to look at the specific context where Paul addressed specific issues. And the problem, sometimes we only hear one side of the conversation. We don't know what the Corinth church said to Paul, what they were asking him about. But when we zoom out and look at the totality of both the Old and the New Testament, what it teaches, we understand. And even we see Jesus elevate the position of women. That it's not okay to use Paul's, you know, teaching. And again, sometimes it was specific teaching for specific church. And we need to understand that it's not applicable in all situations. However, however, here's where the Bible's consistent. Lying is never okay. Murder is never okay. Adultery is never okay. Old Testament, New Testament, never okay. Homosexuality, never okay. The moral code, moral principles, those are the constants that we hold on to. Objection number six. One of the frequent arguments in favor of homosexual behavior is the argument of birth or DNA? And the response is, well, I, I was just born this way. It's, it's not my fault. I can't help it. And this has been a hotly debated issue. Is it nature or is it nurture? Many, including me, believe it's a complex mix of factors, both biological and environmental. I do. I believe that it's possible someone, but whether they haven't, they haven't yet identified the gay DNA gene, but even if they do, I, I would say that's quite possible. It's either both biological or environmental in its nature. But I need to be very clear about something here. And this is a line that is not um, talked about, is, is, is a position not talked about enough in the church. What the Bible condemns are homosexual acts, homosexual behavior. The word does not condemn a person because he or she has a homosexual orientation or because they wrestle with homosexual temptation. Wrestling with temptation is not a sin. Having same-sex attraction is not a sin. Hello? What the Bible condemns is homosexual behavior, homosexual acts. And it is entirely possible for a person to have homosexual orientation, be it genetic or otherwise, and for that person to be a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. A good example of that would be my friend John Forbes, who's actually spoke at this church quite a few years ago. And he and I just contacted each other not re recently. So, let me see, say it again. Homosexual behavior is a sin, and one that must be dealt with as such. And again, here's the reality. We're all born with a sin nature. In a sense, we all live with unfulfilled desires of the flesh, all of us. Sam Albury puts it this way, all have sinned, but it goes further than that. All have sexually sinned. And when I read that the first time in this book, by the way, which I highly recommend, it's a book by uh, Rosaria Butterfield called uh, Openness Unhindered. Uh, but, but when he was, when I read that quote that all, everyone sins, but all, it goes deeper that all have sexually sinned. It dawned on me, you know, that's really true. At, at the very least in our hearts, in our minds, we have all sinned sexually. Where do we get off being so high and mighty and self-righteous against a gay person? Because the fact of the matter is, there's not a person sitting here or listening online right now that hasn't failed sexually. All of us have. And some of us are born with a predisposition to alcoholism. Some are born with a predisposition to intellectual pride. You were born really smart, and you let everybody know it. 
Some were born with a predisposition to um, anger or violence. It's just it's the way you are. You're a Viking by nature. I don't know why, but that's your nature. Many are born with a predisposition to want to have sex with lots of people outside of marriage. I used to work in banking a long time ago. The guy, I was in my 20s, he was in his 20s, and he used to brag about the fact that he betted, that was his term, betted over 100 women. Some are born with a predisposition to be that guy. My point is that on this side of eternity, all of us live with a predisposition to sin. Hello. All of us. But our human nature cannot be an excuse for living in sin. I can't help it. I was just born that way. Yes, you can, by the grace of God, address that. And we're all born with a predisposition to sin, but it's never an excuse to live in sin. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the struggle of someone who wrestles with same-sex attraction. I have some very good friends who live with this all the time. But the reality is we all have, we all have desires that we shouldn't act on. We all have to make a choice to say yes to God and no to the flesh. Every one of us have to deal with that reality probably every day and multiple times every day. Which is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, if you were, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a powerful verse, and I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying here. He's saying it doesn't matter whether it's nurture or nature. Our responsibility is to repent, to put off the old man, the old woman, the old person, that predisposition to sin, and to put on Christ, having our minds renewed so that we're more and more like Jesus. The New Testament, the, the, the theological term is sanctification, where we are being in the process of being made who we are in Christ. And by the grace and power of God and the Holy Spirit, we can grow and we can change. And God's committed to that, absolutely committed to that. So I'll put it this way quite clearly and succinctly. Whether you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or a straight nymphomaniac, the call of Jesus is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. It doesn't matter what your sin, what your predisposition is, what you tend to do, where your struggle is. The call is we put that off, the old person off. We put on the new person we are in Christ. If you have a homosexual orientation, you may never be attracted to the opposite sex. And I get frustrated when I hear preachers like me say, just come to Jesus and you'll be set free, brother. And we act like Jesus is this, you know, uh, pill that we pop and it cures us of all our tendency to sin. How many of you have sinned since you came to know Jesus? Anybody here besides three of you? Good, thanks. Yeah, we all have. You may never get over that attraction. You may always live with a temptation to sin. By the way, we all do. And you may, if you're uh, same-sex attraction, you wrestle with that, you may spend the rest of your life as a celibate. However, as you follow and obey Jesus, you may find your sexual preferences start to change and revert to what God intended. And that would be my prayer for you. John Mark, again, his book, Loveology, put it this way. I love this statement. He said, entrance into the kingdom of God makes the impossible possible and the unthinkable thinkable. One of the great truths, in fact, my message on Easter is going to be about hope, is that in Christ we have hope. The hopeless find hope. The 
impossible becomes possible because of God. The unthinkable becomes thinkable because of him. And he's the one who's committed more than we can even possibly imagine and understand to our growth and maturity and to helping us become the men and the women that he's created us to be. Here's the last objection, and I'll be brief. Number seven. Objection seven, the church has a double standard and often looks the other way with lots of other sins. And I've heard this argument as well. Well, you know, even if, you know, the Bible says this, and even if, you know, the church is just, they've got a double standard. They look the other way when all sorts of other things, and there's all these people committing adultery and all this other stuff going on. And and my my, my response to them, and it might surprise you, here it is. The church does, in fact, have a nasty history of ignoring and downplaying other things, clearly identified as sin and a very big deal in the Scripture. Let's just be honest. Let's own it. The church, capital C. I hope not us, but the church, worldwide, history-wide, has a nasty, nasty habit of picking the stuff that they want to pick on. Their pet peeves, while ignoring all sorts of other things. Listen again to Romans 1, verse 29 to 31. Listen carefully. They those with a deprived mind, have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Evil, greed, depravity, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They dissipate their parents. There's no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Verse 29 to 30 lists at least, depending on how you count them, at least 13 other sins. But what do some gay-bashing preachers land on when they preach out of Romans 1? The one that they really don't want to, to, and they they don't like to to deal with is homosexuality. There are 13 other sins here. And in fact, the Bible has a lot more to say about the sins of gossip and slander and divisiveness than it does about homosexuality. Now, again, let me be clear. That does not excuse any sin. Because here's two things I want to be clear, and I'll wrap this up. Number one, no sin is a good sin. Can I get somebody to say amen to that? No sin is a good sin. But we can't pick the sin we want to pick on. And no sin is one that doesn't matter to God. All sin matters. All sin breaks the heart of God. Listen, let me make it personal. Your sin breaks the heart of God. That being acknowledged and admitted, and the fact that, yes, the church has practiced a double standard at times, for that, again, I say forgive us. The reason why homosexuality tends to get more attention from the church is because no one's trying to legalize adultery. No one's trying to legalize murder or pride. And so part of what's happened in this is that the social agenda, the legal agenda, has created quite a a, a storm. And again, there are times, though, where the church has practiced a double standard, and that's not okay. Because no sin should be downplayed or ignored and treated as no big deal. And I'll put it this way, I believe we should be equal opportunity repenters. All of us. Equal opportunity repenters. All of us focus on the log in our own eye, dealing with the crap in our own life before we worry about the sin in someone else's. But here's where I want to laugh. We all fail. We all struggle. The good news is we're not alone. The hope I want to offer to you if you're listening online or sitting in this room and wrestling with uh, homoerotic desires, wrestling with same-sex attraction, is that there's hope found in Jesus. There's hope found in him. 
He offers you the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit that can transform you from the inside out. He offers you the body of Christ, the church, which though we have failed to do this too often, the church is there to stand with you and support you. And the promise from this pastor is we will do our best to love you the way Jesus loves you. And whether you're a Christ follower or not and you've completely rejected everything I've said today, I need you to hear this. You're loved. I love you. Whether you vehemently disagree, passionately disagree with everything I've said today, I need you to hear this. I love you no matter what. My love for you is unconditional and not based on your choice to do what I think is right or not. I will love you, and that's the promise I have. But greater than my love is the love of God. He loves you too. One last story, and I'll pray for us. Years ago, when I was in my 20s, I was on staff, late 20s, on staff at a church in Oceanside, California. And I was the young guy on staff, and so I, I got to work with young adults. And we had uh, quite a few of them. Some of them were from the um, military, the Marine base. We were in Oceanside, very near to that. But lots of just young people in the group. Some married, some unmarried. And one guy in the group, I, I'll call him Brad, was not his real name, but just give him a little bit of privacy, because I don't have his permission to tell this story, because I couldn't track him down. But uh, Brad came to me after a Tuesday night, a young adult group, um, and he said, Kurt, can I talk to you for a bit? I said, yeah, you bet. And we were meeting in, in someone's apartment. We were in a living room, and he said, well, can we sit down? I said, sure. And he began to tell me his story. And Brad was 26 years old, and his story that he started with, he said, at 16, I had my first gay sex, my first sex with a man. And for 10 years, he said, Kurt, I, I can't tell you how many, hundreds times. He said, I, I can't tell you how many different men I've had sex with over the last 10 years. I'm HIV positive. I, I'm, I'm a messed up. I'm, I don't even know if God wants me. But I said, there's something in me. There's something in me that knows that I need help and I need God. And his question to me was, does God want me I ached, I still ache. If anybody would ask that question, does God want me? I grabbed him and I gave him a big old bear hug, which I think surprised him because, you know, sometimes homophobia kicks in with people. And I just, I loved on him. I said, Brad, God loves you. And he wants to walk through this journey with you, through this struggle with you. And he loves you, my friend. That night, sitting in that living room on that couch, Brad gave his life to Jesus. And for the next two years, it was hell. It was a struggle after struggle after struggle. Because it was hard to break old patterns and old thoughts and, and old habits and ways that he had identified himself and, and participated. But then God began to set this guy free of those old things as he put off the old and put on the new and his mind was renewed in Christ. And the last I heard of Brad, it's been a long time, but the last I heard of him, he was married and had two kids. and was doing great. Now, does that always happen? That's a happy ending. Does that always happen? No. I can tell you, like my friend John Forbes, he's lived single for a long time. But I do know this, there's hope in Jesus. And I want the church to be a place where we say there's hope. There's love and there's hope in him. Bow your heads, let me pray for you.
Lord, I, I, I can't... Um, can't get through this without getting choked up because for me it's about people. It's not just about truth or righteousness. It's not just about having uh, our ducks all lined up theologically. It's about people. And I deeply love people, Lord, and I know you do more than I do. And so, Lord, I pray right now, Jesus, I ask you that somehow, no matter where they're at, what they're experiencing, what they've gone through, whether they're a parent of a child who's identified himself as gay or whether they're, they've identified themselves as gay, Lord, wherever they're at right now, would you just wrap your arms around them and whisper into their hearts, there's hope, that you love them. And I know truth, Lord, is hard sometimes to hear, but I know truth is what sets us free. So set us free today, Lord. Set people free. Free to become what you want them to become. Free to receive the power of God that changes us from the inside out. Free to live the life that you've called us to, a life of godliness and holiness in you and through you. Maybe you're here today. Keep your head bowed, your eyes closed just for a minute. Maybe you're here. You have not yet started your life as a Christ follower, but you're, you're like my friend Brad. Maybe different sins, but you recognize, man, I, I, I need God. And you've wondered, but does God want me? That answer is yes, explanation point. Yes, he wants you. He sent his son to die for you and to die for your sins. And he offers you forgiveness and grace and mercy. And if, if that's what you want, and you're here today, and you want to begin your life as a Christ follower, you want that relationship with God through Jesus, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. But I'm going to ask you to make this prayer yours right now. Father, forgive me. I have sinned. It's not easy to say that. Everything in me resists acknowledging that I'm messed up. But God, I am. And I want your life. I want salvation. I want grace. I want mercy. I want new. This old way is killing me. So right now I surrender my life to you. I ask you to take every part of me to help me to become that person you created me to be. And to live in me. And to help me follow you from now into eternity that's what I choose. That's what I want. And thank you. Thank you, God, for choosing me. Now, if that's you in your heart, would you just say, yep, that's me, God. The Bible says that moment you do, you become a child of God. And you're on this journey now where all of the resources of heaven are yours to help you. You're not alone. You're not alone. Lord, seal that reality in their hearts today that they now have a new identity in you, that their primary, first identity is child of God from this point on. Seal that in their hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with one of my favorite songs. It talks about how good God is. How he's a good, good father. It's who he is. Do you enjoy this if you're 
Christ follower for the first time, sing it with all your heart. Let's sing it together, and I'll come back and wrap it up. It's become pretty popular amongst some of my liberal Christian friends to use the phrase, well, love wins. And I like to remind them, you're right, love does win. But love without truth is not really love. Because Jesus said in John 8, the truth that sets us free. And frankly, the other side of the coin is truth without love is not like Jesus. It's grace and truth. It's grace and truth. Our attitude towards gay people, towards your gay son, your gay daughter, your gay brother, your gay friend, our attitude needs to be the same as Jesus. God loves you and he offers you hope. And I'm going to love you no matter what. Jesus wasn't put off or alienated by the sin of others. Never was, never, ever was. Neither should we be either. We wrap our arms around him. We say, we love you. We love you. Today, if you became a Christ follower, if you entered into that relationship of love with God through Jesus, welcome to the family. And I, I just want to tell you, we're here to walk in this journey with you. On the tables by the doors, there's a packet of white envelopes it's for new believers on it. It's got some material. Get you starting to walk with Jesus. The Bible is our gift to you. Please take one of these. Sign up for this next class, the Next Steps class. Watch, we do it every couple months or so we run this class. So get involved in that as well. If you uh, need prayer, prayer team will be down front. There's communion available on both sides of the room. If you miss the offering buckets, again, you can drop uh, the prayer request your offering in the black boxes against the wall. And since I ran a little over, if you got kids, go get them pretty quickly after this, you would, because we can start another service in 22 minutes. Here's my, here's my closing benediction. Go be like Jesus this week. Go be like him. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here today.